Podcastle, episode 326, for August 28th, 2014, Haunts, by Claire Humphrey. Rated R contains violence, disturbing imagery, and sex. The sex is not disturbing. Hello and welcome back to Podcastle. I'm your host and co-editor Dave Thompson. There's a new term I came across a few weeks back on a dribble of ink, one I wasn't familiar with, coined by MJ Locke. Chrome-assed bitch. It's a term for a female character somewhere between 40 and 50. Not your typical YA heroine, basically. On a dribble of ink, fantasy author Teresa Frohawk argued that science fiction has a lot of these types of characters, but that for some reason they're nowhere near as prevalent in fantasy fiction, which I think is probably accurate, but I kind of like to think that we do a little bit better of a job of that in short fiction, and here at Podcastle in particular. There are plenty of stories about young princesses and angsty teenage girls, not as many as we'd like to see of 40 to 50 year old women, tired of the angsty romance, uh, trying to choose between vampire or werewolf, ready to just kick ass, chew bubblegum, and take names. Hey, Anna Schwent, somebody's looking for your biography. Our story this week features just such a woman, a duelist well past her prime, who has lost peers as well as a lot of herself and is haunted by all of it. Losing people close to us, or at least close to this community, is something we know about here in podcasting land. Last week we ran a promo for one of the best-loved fiction podcasters in the business, P.G. Holyfield, who was unexpectedly dying from cancer. The promo was, and is, supposed to help raise money for his medical care and to help take care of his children, and I'm going to link to it again, his GoFundMe page, and the show notes. Please, donate if you can. The day after we ran that promo, P.G. Hollyfield died. It was fast, it was unexpected, and I think it rocked our not-so-little fiction podcasting community pretty hard. He was one of us, I didn't know him, and that doesn't matter. He was one of us. Losing him, losing someone like him who helped build this community, it hurts. And I thought a lot about him while I was listening to this story. Podcastle is very proud to present Haunts by Claire Humphrey, originally published in Inner Zone 249, November 2013. Claire Humphrey is a favorite author of ours and I think writes some of the most interesting stories around. She lives in Toronto, where she works in the book business, and writes short fiction and novels. Her stories have appeared in Beneath Ceaseless Skies, Strange Horizons, Inner Zone, Crossed Genres, Fantasy Magazine, and several anthologies including long hidden, speculative fiction from the margins of history. She's also the reviews editor at Idiomancer. Stories of hers that we've featured here include Bleaker Collegiate Presents, an all-female production of Waiting for Godot, which might be one of the longest podcast stories, titles I remember running here. Also, 
Nightfall in the Scent Garden, and Who in Mortal Chains, the story I credit for helping make me fall in love with beer finally. Thank you, Podcast Ale. Julia Rios is your reader this week, who is one of the editors at Strange Horizons. She's also a podcastle author, she wrote Oracle Gretel, and a frequent narrator. She read Liz Argyle's Excellent Mermaid's Hook for us most recently, I believe. And if there's some way we can give her a golden ticket or an honorary key to podcastle, I think she deserves it. I wrote her and asked her if she'd be willing to read this story, and said she could do it real quick, but that she'd be traveling right after. What she really meant, apparently, was that she was getting married. So congratulations, Julia. Happy trails to you. Thanks for squeezing this one in. So, meet us and our first at dawn. Swords at the ready. And enjoy the story. Haunts by Claire Humphrey The Corrigan's knife severs my little finger from my palm, just above the Mount of Mercury. You are permitted to look away, the Corrigan comments. I shrug the shoulder that isn't locked down and keep watching. The knife, obsidian, joints me like I'm a bird. Somewhere inside my forearm I feel the pull of my tendon loosed. Little blood and no pain. The Corrigan knows her work and the numbness of the lockdown extends all the way to my breast. In five minutes, the Corrigan has stowed the finger in its cooler, joined flaps of skin over the hollow socket, and healed it over with a couple of passes of a graft stick. "'You'll have minor pain for a few weeks,' she says. "'You don't need to keep it covered. The scar will change color. That's normal. If you feel a loss of sensation or have any discharge, come back to me.' She takes off the lockdown and feeling surges back through my breast, up over my trapezius, down my arm. I flex my hand. Sure enough, it hurts. Nothing I can't bear. She walks me to the front desk. The buyer waits there. An attendant comes out and hands him the tiny cooler tagged with my name. The buyer grins at her, then at me. He flips me the envelope with my cash in it. You'll make another fighter very happy, the buyer says, shaking my right hand, the whole one, looking to the door. The Corrigan has gone already, back into her operating room. I don't insult the buyer by counting the cash in front of him. I wait until his van disappears round the corner. The money's all there. Halfway through counting it, I find I have to lean against the wall. The Corrigan's attendant gets me a chair and a glass of water. She says the Corrigan won't mind if I lie down for a bit, but I wave her away. I'll be fine in the fresh air. I take my money to the office of the governor, and I pay the taxes on the school for this quarter, and the overdue ones from last. That does for the envelope, almost all of it. My fingers bought me three months. I use a bit of my remaining fee to buy a bottle of Vigno Verde. At the school... I let myself in and ascend the stairs. All the walking has my bad leg aching, along with the new seam of skin where my finger was. When I uncork the wine, I take a small swallow for myself. Only one. The rest is for the haunts. I bring the open bottle to the east window just under the eaves. From up here, the haunts are quite visible, standing apart from each other, looking aimlessly up and about, their shrouds pale against the dark, privet leaves. All the graduates of the Flanders Park School for Duelists gathered here in its old garden. All but two.
And then I see him, Cordelo, newly come, leaning against the high fence under an overhanging willow. So it's all but one, and that one is me. I wave to Cordelo. He waves back in the languid manner they all share. They used to be sharp, lusty, furious, darting, meticulous, gleeful, a hundred different things according to their natures and their whims. Now they're all like this, wandering between the garden walls. Sometimes the constellation of their placement barely changes between dawn and dusk. I wonder if I'll enjoy it when I am with them. They do not look sad exactly, but they do not look like duelists. Not even Cordelo, who still has the memory of his long blade with him, drooping from his hand. They cluster slowly beneath the window as I watch. When they've assembled, I tilt the bottle. Pale wine spills down. The haunts come in like moths drawn to the light of it. The bottle empties fast. The haunts seem to wait for more. After a long minute, they drift apart again, silent and separate. The ones who were lovers in life show each other no favor now. The ones who were rivals show each other no spite. Once in a while, they show me a flicker of something, a hand raised to request or acknowledge. I am the last of them, and so long as I have the power, I will keep us all in our home. I still have many fingers, and I hear thumbs will fetch a bit more than the others. In the plaza, the flag is still at half-mast for Cordelo, but that hasn't stopped anyone from posting today's duel. I cross the grounds, chalk marks, dried blood, shoe scuffs, and the dung of dogs. Tacked to the flagpole, the duel sheet flutters in the breeze. Paolo and Juvela. It was Juvela who beat Cordelo. She came out of it scatheless. If I was still dueling, I'd be honor-bound to challenge her. As I am a civilian now, the code forbids me any reprisal. I am very nearly glad of that. Yuvela has the kind of grace no duelist wants to see ruined. She might make it to the capital this year. Cordelo wouldn't have gone so far had he lived, and someone else might have taken him less cleanly. A guy in a fine woolen coat lounges on the rim of the fountain. Thirty-ish, and with a soft belly on him. Even with my bad leg, I know I could take him. You Allegra, he says. I incline my head. I guessed from the missing finger. Heard you started selling off. I hope you got a fair price. If you're opening negotiations for my next sale, I guess I'd better tell you I don't come cheap, I tell him, easing down nearby on the stone fountain lip. I took an opponent every day for 30 days in a row in my second season. What happened? What always happens? Got cocky. Got drunk, in fact. Got laid. Slept the sleep of the just and woke up so late I almost missed the bells. I heard Hanana hamstrung you. Beginner's luck, I tell him. Hanana only lasted ten formal fights, all told. She gave it up to Cordelo not a week after ending my career for me. My loss, the guy says. I came to the provinces too late. Wish I could have seen you work. Yeah, I was something. 
I'll bet you were. He extends his hand to me. Adi Solomon. Not a duelist, then. No balls, he says. Huh. So you can laugh, anyway. Want a plate of eggs? Thanks, but... Idiot. You're selling off fingers. I know you must be short of cash. Pay me back with some war stories if you want. I know nothing other than the duel. My guardian took me from the workhouse nursery right after he founded the school. He taught me himself until the school grew larger, and then he would sometimes hand me off to the older students. When he died, he left me the place. I'd entered the lists by then, but only just. I didn't know how to balance books or manage staff. I couldn't imagine another dueling master in place of my guardian, so I never found the time to hire one. The older students graduated. The newer students drifted away to schools with more famous masters. I figured I'd keep the school afloat with my winnings until I'd made enough of a name for myself. Then I went down against Hanana. It felt like the end. But it was only one in a series of endings. For a while, the school lived on in its other students. A number did very well. Epifanio took the triple garland in the capital a year before he succumbed to influenza. Cordelo was the last of the graduates still dueling. Everyone else went earlier, some in the plaza and some later in the hospital, one by infection after selling off her forefinger, one by fire, one by drowning. Cordelo had been recovering well from his injury, but then was killed by a blood clot that traveled to his brain. I should have been among the crowd watching the procession of Cordelo's beer. I should have been at his wake, held at the Albion house. All sorts of rabble turn out for the passing of a duelist, though. I didn't trust myself not to toss a glove at anyone. Anyway, I figured I'd see him again soon enough. The haunts might have known, too. When I watched them from my east window the day of the wake, they stood in a cluster looking downtown. I tell Adi Solomon about the eclipse the day of Paolo's first fight, which was called at a draw because the crowd had superstitiously broken so many eggs that the whole plaza was slick with albumen. I tell him about Hanana, how Cordelo took her in the femoral artery as payment for me, and how I watched it on broadcast from my hospital bed. I tell him how I wept there. I knew already that I wouldn't fight again. I tell him about meeting the great Fajra when I was no more than a girl myself, and how she chose her name and how the rest of us still follow her. I must be shocky from the corrigion still, or it's the coffee on my empty stomach. I tell him things he cannot possibly care to hear, things I did not even know I was thinking. I don't tell him about my haunts. The plate comes. Three eggs, two slices of bacon, a mound of potatoes, four slices of rye toast, a grilled tomato, and a sprig of parsley. I eat. Adi Solomon watches. When he isn't watching me, he watches the plaza, where pigeons cross the white sky and paper bags blow over the cobbles. He sips coffee and licks a drop of it from his round lower lip. What will you do, he asks, when you run out of fingers? Around the time of my first fight, there was a quack selling fingers he claimed to be Fajra's. A couple of people bought them, 
They weren't really Fajra's fingers, of course, but some of them might have been someone's. At least one of those duelists went on to the Capitol and won garlands there. I saw him interviewed on broadcast. He held up his hand. The newer finger looked pale and knobby compared to his other fingers. The graft scar ran in an uneven ring around his knuckle. It feels just like my old finger, he said, when I'm not fighting. Except that sometimes it gets the rest of my hand to wrap itself around a pint glass. I thought about nine other duelists in nine other pubs ordering nine pints they didn't know they wanted. I thought about whose finger I'd buy if I lost one of my own to injury or needed an edge. I didn't think about having to sell my own. Not then. In those days, most of the people I knew were alive. Adi Solomon pays for our meal from a fat billfold. I think about knocking him down and taking it, but I'm comfortably full, and besides, we wouldn't want to miss the start of the fight. Outside, the crowd thickens. Push carts sell roasted chestnuts. Everyone mills about outside the bounds of the square. I lead Solomon directly across the middle, back to the fountain. Some kids are sitting there, but they shift aside for me. When I look at them harder, they shift a bit more for Solomon. Lounging on the sun-warmed stone, with my bad leg propped up, my hands folded against a stuffed belly, and a third cup of coffee in me, I feel so damn nice that I have to do something to wreck it. I hold out my left hand for Solomon to see, and flex the ring finger. Too grand, I tell him. <sighs> he exhales. You shouldn't open the negotiations. You wait for the other person to go first. Go then. I would have offered two at the outset myself, he says. You could have beat me up to two and a half, if you were patient about it. So if we're both in the neighborhood of two, doesn't that mean we can quit dancing and shake on the deal? No, he says. I'm not a buyer. I knew you weren't a buyer. You haven't even got a cooler for the finger. Solomon raises his eyebrow at me. You sold to one of those guys? This is breaking my heart. I don't need a manager, Solomon. He shrugs and looks away from me. He fumbles out a cigarillo and lights one for me, too. The bells ring, the crowd gets quiet, and I see the ushers coming up from the practice field, bearing their white-ribboned staffs. Yuvela waves to me, following behind. She's shorn her head since last week. An old scar stretches from her crown downward, splitting the cartilage of one ear. Paolo, holding Yuvela's hand according to custom, looks away from me. I shift my cigarillo to the corner of my mouth to say, he knows Yuvela's going to beat him. Maybe you should sell him your finger. He won't take it. He never faced me. He thinks he's better than me. Is he right? He'll never know. Solomon touches my ring finger with the tip of his own forefinger, careful not to brush the fresh scar next to it. Maybe he won't, but you know. I hold very still as his fingertip touches me, the way you do when a dragonfly lands on your arm by the river. The touch glances away after a moment, leaving a phantom heat behind. In the center of the plaza, Juvela and Paolo display their favors, salute the cardinal directions, and then each other. 
Yuvela's favor is a scrap of green silk to match the new gem studding her ear. Her stance is wide and low. If I had to find fault, I'd say she was a bit flat-footed. The moment the crier sounds off, she skims up to Paolo, faints with her right and lunges with her left blade, and Paolo barely evades her with an ungainly side-slip. I see what you mean, says Solomon. She killed her man last week. I don't tell him I knew that man. She's training for midsummer garlands now, and the capital in the fall. And Paolo's not? Sure, but he's not going to make it. Not this year. Maybe never. Ought to find another career, then. He's sworn to his patron. Even if Paolo figures out he doesn't have a shot, he's in it for the season. We don't back out once we're sworn. We? You aren't a duelist anymore, Allegra. I take the smoke of my cigarillo into my lungs, and I hold it there as long as I can. He's a civvy. You can't explain things to them. The crowd shouts, and I train my eyes on the fight. Paolo's managed to score on Yuvela, lancing a shallow groove up her tricep, cutting across the maroon ridges of a dozen older injuries. You can tell a lot about a duelist by the pattern of scars. Me? I always seem to take it on my forearms. Yuvela retaliates with a double attack, high and low. If her arms weakened, I can't tell. She gets Paolo with her right point on a cross thrust, nicking him just under the collarbone. His jerkin stops most of it. The blood blooms slowly. Time. The two fighters retreat to their corners, where white-ribboned staff stand in sand buckets. A page gives Yuvela a water bottle to suck, and she bends down so that he can towel the sweat from her head and the blood from her arm. Beside me, Solomon drops his boots to the ground, pushes himself upright, and walks away. I see Paolo on the other side of the grounds, exchanging his gourd jerkin for a fresh one. His bared back is a shade less brown than his arms. His ribs heave under his skin. His patron stands nearby, exhorting him, and Paolo nods and nods. Solomon comes back just as the crier sings out again. He unscrews the cap of a rectangular bottle, sips, and hands it to me. It tastes of iodine and earth and gunpowder, and I savor it. On the cobbles, Yuvela's feet stamp and shuffle. She skates over the uneven ground. She misses Paolo's trapezius with a thrust of her long blade, but punches the quillen of her short blade left-handed past his temple, breaking the skin like peach flesh. At the same time, Paolo lays the flat of his long blade blindly across Yuvela's back so that he catches her right elbow on the backswing. Both cry out. They disengage. Paolo attacks while Yuvela's arm is still numbed. She backsteps, snaking her spine and hollowing her belly, so that the blade skims past her. She switches her long blade into her left hand, tossing her short blade so that it skitters over the line into the crowd. Paolo lunges again, and Yuvela parries lightly, beating him off just enough to run up the outside of his guard and skewer him in the right shoulder. He falls back and salutes her left-handed, lips skinned back from his teeth. The crier calls the fight then, a technical maiming, and a page carries forth the garland for Yuvela. Solomon and I toast the fighters with the rectangular bottle while the crowd claps. People throw roses and handkerchiefs. 
Startled pigeons fly up from the surrounding roofs. I like to stay until it's all over, I say, when Solomon moves to rise. Uvela's page helps her to bind up her bad arm and wipe down her blades. When she is put to rights, her patron comes to her and kisses her upon both cheeks. See their faces, I murmur. Yes, says Solomon. But when I look back at him, he is looking only at me. I take Solomon with me back to my schoolhouse. So this is where you learn to fight, he says. This is where I learn to do everything. The dining hall has been closed up for a year or more, the walls bare of garlands, the banner folded up in a cedar chest in the storeroom. The hall now contains nothing but a long table with a dusty sheet over it. I shove my trousers down past my knees, and I sit up on the table. Solomon steps in close and cups his hands under me, lifting me up against his body. He yanks the tails of his shirt out from between us so that I can feel the heat of him. You're all sinew. He runs a palm up my thigh. I wind my hands under his shirt and over his belly. You're not. Rich living. Indeed. So rich it makes my mouth water. I think of him eating meat and butter, sleeping in fine cotton. Even his coat is new wool, no moth holes, all of the stitches fine and neat. Ready? He touches me to find out, and brings his fingers to his lips, and then to mine. After, I lie on my back on the table, and pat the sheet beside me, gesturing for Solomon to lie there too. I don't think your table will survive it, he says, leaning against the wall instead. He wipes himself dry with a white handkerchief and puts his trousers to rights. And he's correct. When I lever myself up, the dodgy leg of the table folds under and spills the stained sheet in a crumple to the floor. I almost follow it down as my bad leg cramps. Solomon catches my elbow and helps me lower myself. His warm hands knead the scar and the tight muscles around it while I lounge back against the tilted plane of the tabletop and sip from the bottle. After a while, he slips it from my hand. I'm too sated to bother opening my eyes. I wake in a slanted rectangle of half-light, with my trousers folded under my head and the drop sheet twisted around my legs. Silence. He's gone, then. He left me the bottle. I rinse my mouth with it, and I sit up and slowly dress. My leg straightens with a twinge. I can feel a rosary of bruises forming on my back where my vertebrae met the table, almost as good as dueling scars they are, these autographs of pleasure on my body. I leave my feet bare. The floor is as clean as my daily sweepings can make it. In the kitchen, I drink water from the tap, and I splash them into a glass along with more of the stuff from the bottle. The rest of it will make a fine meal for the haunts, a rich treat. They move below the window like dreams turning in sleep, arms raised lazily. Their mouths catch the whiskey from the air. I pour it out in gouts, watching it sparkle as it falls. Afternoon lengthens into evening. Hazy shade shifts over the garden. 
I'd find it peaceful if it wasn't for all the noise next door. Someone's chopping firewood or beating a carpet. Cordelo turns toward the fence even before I empty the last of the whiskey. His head lolls in a way it never would have done while he lived, unless he was exhausted or very drunk. He drifts out from beneath the willow, trailing the point of his blade. The branches of the willow shiver with the impacts of the neighbor's noise. They cannot be cutting my tree, can they? Its bark has grown thickly around the fence posts, so that one cannot be felled without the other. I must not let them breach my garden. Even the branches shading it must not be cut. I must persuade them. It may mean money. Another finger. Before I have done more than lift my elbows from the sill, though, I see the flash of steel splinter through the fence, tearing old wood. And again, the wound widens, the new wood bright where the axe lays it open. My haunts slowly turn to watch, angling their bodies, trailing their winding cloths, drifting in ones and twos closer to the breach. I drop my glass, I bolt for the door, and my bad leg twists under me, sending me sideways. Careening down the stairs, any grace I ever had torn away, I nearly rip the banister from the wall. I burst out into the golden light and round the fence. My bare feet bite into the sod. Solomon is raising the axe for another blow. I slam into him with my shoulder tucked. We fall in a tangle of limbs and my sleeve tears on the axe blade. I wrench it from his hands and toss it down on the roots of the willow. I'm choking. I can't speak. Solomon sits up slowly, wincing. Hey, hey, I'm sorry about your fence, but there were haunts in your garden. He must see something in the wreck of my face. He raises his hands. You knew. Over his shoulder, I see the great rending he's made in the fence. I scramble for it, half on my hands. I seize the broken wood on either side and put my face to the gap. In the garden, I see last year's rose canes, goldenrod not yet in bloom, an overturned bucket, a square of bare earth where we used to practice in good weather. A few early bees. No shades. None of my companions in their winding sheets. They were reaching out for help, Solomon says. They raised their hands to me. I couldn't just leave them. Is that what you saw? I look back at him. In the striped light under the willow, he looks troubled, fearful and sweaty, and nothing at all like a liar. They cannot have been reaching out for help. I would have seen it. I know them. I knew them. They wanted to stay here just as I do. They loved this place in life. I cannot have been keeping them here unwilling. Can I? I say none of this, but Solomon's eyes widen. He sits back on his heels on a willow root, and he covers his face. I limp back upstairs to the east-facing window, even though I know what I will see. Just another view of the garden, untenanted. And now the dead are dead, and I will never know the truth of it. The next day, I sell the remains of the fence and the willow for firewood. A pair of boys with a motor cart come to pick it up. While they take turns splitting and stacking, I sit on the overturned bucket in the garden, watching them. 
The night was dry, and the earth still smells of spilled whiskey. I tell the boys to take the broken table, too. When they're gone, I take the coin they gave me, and I walk out to market. My leg is weak, and my hand throbs. I purchase a pie and a few leathery apples and a bottle of beer, and when I have eaten it all, I walk back. Solomon is waiting for me in his long coat, leaning against a very fine automobile. Here, he says, offering his hand. I don't take his hand, but I let some of my weight ease back against the gunmetal polish of the automobile. Off my bad leg. He reaches for my wrist and fastens a brown leather bracelet around it. A favor, he says. I'd like to be your patron. You'd sponsor a duelist who can't fight? I'd sponsor the Flanders Park School, he says. It's a poor investment, I say, spreading my hands, gesturing to the shuttered facade, the stump of the willow. You're still here, he says. He runs his fingertip over the grafted scar where my finger was. And I think you might find it easier to attract students now that the place isn't full of haunts. I cannot strike him. The code forbids it. I can only walk away as crisply as my leg will let me. I lose the favor surreptitiously the next day while watching a parade winding downtown in the rain. Later, I regret this. I spend an hour searching, but the gutter runs with dirty water and piss, and I never find the favor. The day after that, a solicitor arrives with Solomon's money. I do not send him away. I pay a man to sweep the empty rooms and polish all the floors with cinnamon-scented beeswax. I pay a seamstress to mend the banner, and I hang it again in the dining hall. I'm not sure how far Adi Solomon's money is meant to go. The solicitor tells me Solomon has gone to the capital, leaving no message for me. I am putting away food in the larder when the bell rings. I set down a bag of potatoes and go to answer. The fellow there is small, a bit less than my own size, with black hair shaved close to his head. He is a duelist. I know before he speaks by the elephant balance of his weight. Alecra, he says. I am Georgo. He waits as if his name should be known to me. Of what school, I ask. Of this one, I guess, he says. And he extends his hand to me, and I see the fresh graft at the base of the smallest finger on his left hand. By the time Solomon returns from the capital, Georgo has been joined by Caracinda and Miela, and our first four students have enrolled in day classes. Georgo gets his own room because he is shy and fastidious. Caracinda and Miela share because they share everything. Georgo knows how to bake bread and pies, and I fill out our menu with soups. Georgo teaches the younger two students. Miela teaches the older two. Caracinda teaches all four the art of the melee twice a week, and does the accounts. I teach the history and philosophy, except when I have been drinking. And then Caracinda steers me away to the back garden while Miela takes over the lecture. When Solomon returns, the students have gone home for the evening, so we are all spared the ordeal of introducing the school's patron. 
I remember spit-shining my boots before such an introduction when I was young. Flanders Park School has a way to go before it will pass a spit-shine test again. Still, Solomon is smiling as he gets out of his automobile. He wears no coat now that the summer has come, and I see creases in his linen shirt where it tugs over his belly. He is carrying a parcel wrapped in carmine red paper. I watch from the window until Georgo comes to fetch me. I receive Solomon in the salon. We have a salon now. Solomon sets down the parcel on one of the wing-back chairs. He reaches out his hands to me and I grasp them in mine. His face twists then. I see his teeth catch the corner of his lip. Damn my idiot solicitor, he says, and takes my left hand more roughly, thumbing over the neat grafted scars where my ring finger and middle finger used to be. Ah. It's not about the money, I begin. I told him to give you whatever you wanted, an apartment downtown, introductions, damn it. And he presses my hand to his lips. The scars have feelings still, I find, especially the freshest. He sent Georgo here, I point out. Because Georgo was the guy who ended up with your little finger, Solomon says. And I thought he could take over. His record was good before he was maimed. It's even better now, I tell him, and I lead him into the dining hall where two of Georgo's garlands now hang, and one more from only two days ago, when Caracinda and Miela took it together in the midsummer melee. Who? Solomon says. I don't know either of them. You will, I promise him. They got my other fingers. <sighs> he breathes out and looks away from me. I wanted to spare you any more scars, Allegra. He's a civvy, I remind myself. I can't expect him to get this all at once. I push him back against the new table and run my remaining fingers over his shoulders and down his chest. Oh no, he says. I remember this table. No, this one's new. You bought it. I still don't think it's up to my weight, he says, reaching under my thighs to lift me up. Then buy me another. The table holds. The new favor is an earring with a brown tiger's eye stone dangling from it. Solomon threads it through the piercing in my ear, his big hands sure and gentle. After he leaves, I pour myself a glass of vigno verde and I sit in the garden. I touch the tiger's eye with the finger and thumb I have remaining on my left hand. It's glossy, smooth just heavy enough that I can feel the constant little tug on my earlobe, where for years there was nothing. Instead of finishing my wine, I pour it out onto the earth behind the rose canes, and the earth drinks it down. And welcome back. Before the story, I talked to you about P.G. Holyfield's GoFundMe, which is still rolling and still needs your support. Before we get to feedback, I'd like to talk to you about another. It belongs to a man named Bobby Lombardi, who you probably haven't heard of. Bobby funded the Long Island Wrestling Foundation and started a wrestling school in Brooklyn called the Doghouse. 
One of the kids he was able to get off the streets was a punk named Matt Wallace. Matt Wallace, you may recognize as the author of Sunday here at Podcastle, Escape Pods Knowing, Pseudopods, well, hell, a lot of Pseudopod episodes, and his very own ebook series, Slingers. Matt is very upfront that Bobby literally helped save his life by getting him off the street and teaching him to wrestle, a profession he held down for several years. Unfortunately, Bobby's in horrible shape these days. He can't afford his medical bills. He lost his leg to diabetes. Life is about as hard as it can get for him. And Matt asked us to help and try and make Bobby's life a little better. I couldn't help thinking of both Bobby and Matt while listening to this week's story. Guys, this is a man who needs help. If you can, please check out the link in our show notes for his GoFundMe project. So, there you go. If you like the work we do at PodCastle, please consider donating to both Bobby Lombardi and P.G. Holyfield's family. Their GoFundMe projects, again, are linked in our show notes. Thank you. Feedback. <laughs> Feedback. How about Ken Liu's MSG Golem, read by Anaya Lay? This was the story about why God does need a spaceship, and the girl who becomes his disciple. Reaction to it was generally positive. Generally. Not everyone was crazy about it. Marsman 1 thought God was inappropriately portrayed as a bumbling idiot, which made me kind of wonder if some of our atheist listeners thought he was portrayed too positively. Slick said, I listened to it while doing the dishes, and as it turns out, my son, 17, ended up overhearing most of it as he was sitting in the dining room. I found out he was listening when, after God said, What I have to work with, my son piped up, Is God racist? Which, I'll admit, was the same thing I thought. Frankly, it was what saved the story for me. I'm not certain if it's blasphemous or not, but I oscillated between shock and schoolgirl giggles as God acted like the father and shit my dad says. On the other end of the spectrum, Infinite Monkey said, Wow, a light-hearted story featuring smart-ass rats and a finicky god from Ken Liu. I guess anything really is possible. And Scott Spath said, Escape artists have made me a fan of Liu's work, and this story was no exception. It made me smile throughout, even if I'm not sure that I laughed out loud, but that's something I try to suppress anyway, since I listen mostly at work. I especially liked the fact that the rats had a happy ending. I was worried that they would end up having to be sacrificed for the greater good. I did still feel for the golem's demise, since it wasn't completely clear if the golem's version of life is sentient or not, but I know that many golem stories end with the golem's death upon the golem's misinterpretation, of some unclear directive. Thanks very much for those comments. You can add to the cheering and jeering and shouts for blood at forum.escapeartist.net. Let us know what you thought of this week's story while you're there. Thanks. That about wraps it up for us this week at PodCastle. On behalf of all of us here, your slushers, LaShawn Wanick, Graham Dunlop, Sarah Goldman, and Arun Jiwa. Your sound producer, Peter Wood, and your editors, Anna Schwend and myself, thank you, thank you, thank you for letting us share another story with you. We'll be back in one week with a story that, despite winning the World Fantasy Award, has never been podcasted. Courtesy of Gregory Norman Bossert. Until then, this is Dave Thompson, reminding you 
to buy us a new table. We'll see you next time. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend or post to your blog about it or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. Lori Hulse Anderson wrote, In one aspect, yes, I believe in ghosts, but we create them. We haunt ourselves. Thank you very much for listening. We'll see you next time.